Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hello, welcome along to a brand new episode of Writer's Routine. This week we're chatting to Paul Bradley Carr. Now he spent 20 years covering the dark side of Silicon Valley for The Guardian, Private Eye, TechCrunch and many more. And he's used all of that experience to write his first novel called 1414 Degrees. We talk about why he leaves everything late. Also, what writing columns has taught him about writing fiction and why sometimes his writing is a bit like a night out in Silicon Valley. At which point the characters go mad and just do whatever they want to do. And I just chase them around with my keyboard and hopefully catch some of them and hopefully some of it makes sense. So so I'm both a plotter and a pantser. I have to plot, but then it goes, you know, completely off the rails. But I trust the I, I. trust those two processes to get me where I need to be in the end. And that was how it always worked as a columnist. I was on deadline. I had two hours to get something to The Guardian or whoever it was. I knew broadly speaking what I wanted to say and where I was going to end up. And I just sat down. And as I was writing, all these realizations would come or all of these points I wanted to make would come. And and by the end of it, without fail, I would have my, my finished piece. And it's been the same with a, a chapter or a section or whatever with the novel. Yes. Hello. Welcome along. It's Writer's Routine. My name's Dan Simpson. This is the show where we take a look, a sneak peek, a mosey around the life of, of an author inside their working day. Now, this week it's with Paul Bradley Carr, who has been a long supporter of this show. Regularly got in touch, frequently tweeted us. He's always been kind. I'm delighted that he's finally published a novel. Uh, Well, it's far from his first book, really. He's been a memoirist for ages. He's written The Upgrade, published that. It's all about hotel living. Also, bringing nothing to the party. Sober is my new drunk. And we'll always have the flamingo. Now, we talk about how they got published and, and strangely why he hates the phrase memoirist. Now, he spent his career as a journalist covering the dark side of Silicon Valley, writing for The Guardian, The Daily Telegraph, Private Eye, Pando Daily, TechCrunch as well. He was also the founder and editor-in-chief of NSFW Core in Vegas and host of the nightly NSFW Not Safe for Work live radio show there too. He's taken all that experience working, living around some of the biggest, uh, richest players in tech. And he's used that to inspire his first novel called 1414 Degrees. It's all about Lou McCarthy, who is investigating someone for murdering billionaires. We talk about why he's interested in the ways and the routines of writers. Also how the idea for the story came to him, why his love of murder mystery prompted him to tell it too. Also, why he's bothered that no one mentioned he picked the most ungoogleable book name ever. And we get into it, as we always do, with Paul Bradley Carr and what he sees around him in the place where he sits down to write. So um, I am very, very lucky where I sit down to write because I, um, my desk, I have a, uh, a desk uh, in, an, in an office in, our, in, in my house. Um, my house is in Palm Springs in California. So... I look out onto two things. The first is a swimming pool, which is ridiculous um, uh, to, that I that I have one of those. But I should say in my defense, everybody in Palm Springs has a swimming pool. It, it's just it's not as not as special as it sounds. Uh, and then beyond the swimming pool, I have this view of mountains. My, my house is surrounded on on well two sides by mountains. So what I really see when I sit down to write is 
some of the most sort of spectacular natural um, natural scenery in in the world, um, and and unfortunately, it's also the most distracting. So I have to focus on the other side, which is a bright red wall that has nothing on it at all, deliberately, no pictures, no calendar, no inspirational messages. It is just a red wall um, that I have to stare at as much as I can to avoid being sucked into the the, the, the view outside my window. Um, so, uh, so yes, I, what I sit, when, what I see hopefully when I sit down to write is just a screen and a red wall, but it's, it's sometimes I get drawn in a, in the other direction. Uh, I've got many questions about where you live, but very quickly uh, about <laughs> the swimming pool. Um, it, and you'll know this because you, you grew up over here and I'm, I'm a Brit who would love a swimming pool, but do you actually use it? So I use it uh, not as often as you would, as I would have thought. If you'd have told me when I was sort of growing up in in Dartford and Kent that I would have a swimming pool, I would have thought I'd be in it constantly. I probably get in it about once a week, which is which is very disappointing. Um, but um, but knowing it's there is nice, you know. It's, it's no, yeah. no, knowing that you've made it that far, you've yeah, I've got, far I've got it, Dan. If I need it, it's there. <laughs> if, if if I should find myself on fire and need something to jump into, it's right there. Um, but but yes, it's more it's more inspirational than than functional, unfortunately for me. No, I, I can absolutely imagine. I think that's the case with many people. So listen, in your writing room, you said that you, you you've tried to cut down distractions, but you've got these love these the, the the great views. What is there that that does distract you? I'm talking. Uh, a big whiteboard, maybe some post-it notes all over the place. Anything that you use for your plot? So I, um, I obviously I'm a huge fan of the show, Dan. So I, I love listening to other people's answers, and they always have some sort of you know the, all these knickknacks and things. But I've no, I, I get very easily distracted, and so um, I, I have a notebook. I have a big sort of A4 size notebook where I, where I keep all of my you know notes for the plot or, or I'm big I'm a big diagrammer so I draw lots of diagrams and, and things um but that's all contained in one giant big uh, blue notebook um beyond that there's there's in front of me there's nothing on the walls I don't have post-it notes I don't have anything like that it's all in the notebook um behind if I turn around behind me I have um some some quite fun um uh photography of 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 um music photography so taking up famous sort of concerts and gigs and things of of various musicians so so if i turn behind me it's like a rock and roll hall of fame wall um and and there's a piano there as well or just a small like keyboard thing there as well um which you know sort of is a musical inspiration behind me but but in terms of the plot in terms of anything like that it's all in that one notebook um because and i think part of it is i used to, until recently um uh, if you'd have asked me, you know, if I'd been on the podcast a year or so ago, I, I used to live mostly in hotels and mostly on the road. I was I started as a newspaper columnist, and then I was a, mem- a memoirist, if that's a word, uh, writing about my own ridiculous adventures around the world. And so I just got very used to, first of all, writing anywhere, but also being very portable. And so the idea of having post-it notes sort of permanently or, you know, temporarily permanently anywhere or or a whiteboard it just didn't if it didn't fit in a carry-on bag I couldn't really have it so I got used to my my office being a notebook and a laptop um and I've kind of just stuck with it I know you're someone that listens to the show so therefore is interested in how other people do things when you were uh, writing a novel off the back of writing so many um well writing memoir and writing journalism how much did you think about what you needed I'm just wondering wondering if there was a a conscious decision that was look oh well I'm a novelist now I write fiction so I need this I need this I need this was there any of that was it quite a a studied decision to make yeah but it was not useful yeah I yes this I bought a beret and a smock no I, (laughs) I no I um definitely when I started writing the novel I did all of these things to try and trick myself into into getting into that sort of magical space where I'm you know creating worlds and all that nonsense and I I, I you know I start I tried to write the first draft in in longhand and I had a brief flirtation with a typewriter like all of these things very early on where I was like I need to get myself out of the columnist uh, or mem- or you know or non-fiction writer mode and so I um I, I, so I, I tried a lot of those things None of them worked. It turns out it's it's the the act of writing was very similar for me of of writing a novel or writing a memoir. It, it involved the sort of the the, the same uh, you know accoutrement, the same trappings, which was the keyboard and the the notebook. Um, but I did try a lot of those things because I did think, uh, especially listening to the show where I, I hear about people's you know routines and 
and and I know everybody every time you know I listen to the show and I listen to sort of other writing podcasts and and, and novelists always seem like this this different species, just slightly spacier than the rest of us, but but slightly more magical. And so I thought I had to get myself into that space, and it was only you know, a few after a few months of wasted time with special notebooks and typewriters and hats that I realized, no, um, it's actually not that different. Um, or, or I'm already quite spacey and weird. Um, but I hadn't realized it, whichever it is, it, 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 there's no real difference for me in the, in the trappings. There's difference in the process mentally, and there's differences obviously in the work, but, but the trappings are the exact same. Me, my notebook and my laptop what's on the laptop then so uh, the rather niche questions that we're getting into recently of uh, like what software are you using what font are you using talk me through that um so i uh what do i use i use um microsoft word um then i have a, a web browser that i try to that i try to keep disabled as much as i can because i am so easily distracted um uh, yeah, that's it. And, uh, you know, I, I sit down with my Microsoft Word file. I don't really have a system beyond, you know, I, I save lots of drafts because I'm paranoid about losing files. Part of, you know, being on the on the road so much um, before was was I got paranoid that I was going to lose a laptop. So I back up to the cloud. I save multiple, you know, every chapter or so I'll do a sort of save as, you know, new draft. And so I end up at the end of the process with a folder of 500 files with stupid names. They're final, final, final draft, you know. So, um, so yeah, very simple. I'm very monkish in my in my writing habits in that regard. What about trinkets and totems or or something superstitious like that? I, I maybe that's on your desk. I only ask because when you're traveling and writing all around the country and you're staying from hotel to hotel, maybe you do take with you just a, a few very personal things that means something to you uh, have you got any of that on your desk yes so i should I, and i should explain to anyone who doesn't know i wrote a book about living in hotels i lived i lived in hotels for for a long time and i wrote a book about sort of living in these upscale hotels so it wasn't that i was on the run from anyone but 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 while i was doing that i did start to collect um room keys like because you can't again i, I had to think what fits in a in a carry-on bag um I, I didn't ever check bags because you would just lose them. They'd end up disappearing off somewhere. So I only ever had a carry-on bag. But I, I would collect room keys because it was a good way of you know marking where I had stayed. And I still have a, a pile of room keys. That is the one sort of trinket I allow myself is in the corner of the desk, there's still this little pile of room keys from hotels from, from Iceland to Las Vegas and beyond. Um where, you know, I don't add to that lit I don't add to that pile quite so much anymore. But but it's it sits there as a kind of reminder that that you know that that's how I used to write. Um, what else do I have? Oh, I do have one other thing which I, I forgot about. Um, it's sort of it's it's become so part of my scenery. I have this little um, I don't know how you describe it. It's sort of a made of stones. It's a little um, statue almost made of made of rocks uh, that is some sort of Canadian traditional. My brother lives in Canada. It's like a traditional Canadian. I don't know what statue. I'm sorry to any Canadians listening, um, but it, it sits on my desk, just sort of staring at me in, in granite. Um, um, and I don't know if it's lucky, but but it certainly um, it certainly tends to be the thing that I sort of my eyes drift to when I'm <clears throat> sort of struggling, and and some magic in this statue helps me continue. So I do have a little Canadian rock sculpture and a pile of room keys. So make of that temp. It's one of them represents permanence, the other temporaryness. I don't know. I don't know either. You're, you're, you're asking the wrong person yeah. there. I'm I wish I could be. This is this is why I'm a bad novelist. You see, a novelist would like if Margaret Atwood were here, she would have a wonderful story about gods and inspiration and things. I'm just like I don't know. I have some Canadian rocks and some room keys, and I think they help. Like I'm very bad at at, at being a novelist. I need to I need to get more spiritual there. First of all, I wrote the first memoir. Well, now let me. Think think more than more than a decade ago and so it's a slightly different time i think now the whole world is is you know because of social media and everything else i think you know we all we all document our lives so much that i don't know if there's any real need for for writing about adventures around the world but but i um no i i started out as i said as a columnist for the guardian um and my job was to write about hanging out with with uh, very rich people I, I was a silicon valley columnist so i wrote about my adventures with all these billionaires, both in London and and um, in the US, and I would travel to conferences and other things to and and then then to their sort of like weird remote hideaways and things, um, and and so I sort of found myself by accident being almost a travel writer, but I also um, I a, a big part of the memoirs was about um, you know I was in my twenties and I got sort of sucked into the kind of party lifestyle and the drinking and the 
the sort of other things. Um, and so the, the memoirs are, I mean, they are memoirs, but they're also very cautionary tales of I got sucked into these very out of control um, party, sort of this party world. So I think probably it does, and this is kind of one of the big takeaways of one of the books I wrote was, was it does sound very great. And it is when you're in your 20s, great to have no responsibilities, no ties, somebody else's, you know, a newspaper or whoever is paying for your your room service, but it very quickly can get out of control and and bad. And I've I've been sober for more than ten years now, so I can say this with the wistfulness of a forty something year old of of it's not it's not that much fun. It's horrible, but it it, it feels it at the time. And so, um, no, unfortunately, the way I became an um, you know I hate the word memoir. So I got to write about those sort of drunken adventures and craziness is because I happened to be hanging out with some very interesting people who who were building these big companies that we all know of now and and fear. Um, but also because I was I was slowly killing myself while doing it, and and I think an agent and then an, an editor saw saw that and thought, well, before he dies, we should get him to write <laughs> this stuff down, I suppose, because because you know I, I would often meet with my agent and he would sort of look in London, he would just look at me with this look of I don't, and he would say I don't know how you do it, and the truth is I don't know how I did it either, but I'm glad I don't do it anymore. <laughs> it's it's amazing because I'm, I'm, I'm always interested in the decision that someone who writes memoir uh, makes to think you know what other people other people would like to read about my life too and I didn't know that they would until until yes I got this sort of agent who said um this is this you've got to do this as a book it is it is interesting because to me it was more just uh you know it was more just regret regret and 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 um craziness um but but yeah I mean it, it I think the fact I think living in hotels this was before Airbnb um, so I think hanging out with with sort of these weird people who people didn't know much about in those days of of these internet billionaires, and then also living on the road in a pre Airbnb world, it did I suppose seem quite weird and and interesting, and it, and it was. But today again, yeah, it would be silly to write a book about living on the road because thanks to COVID and Zoom and Airbnb, we all do it. So so now I write novels. <laughs> And, and as a as a as a, a British lad as, as you are originally, I mean, it's a lot more romantic to. I would hope it's a lot more romantic to be traveling in hotels around the US than it is, you know, staying in the Dartford Premier Inn. I mean, not to not to disrespect the Dartford Premier Inn, which has an excellent continental breakfast. But yes, <laughs> I'll be honest with you. The, the Beverly Hilton does have a slight edge on it um, or, or, you know, a place near a hot spring in in, in Iceland or wherever else. Um but but no, but somehow I always managed to pull defeat from the jaws of victory in that. Like I would have these amazing hotel experience, you know, that I was staying in. And if I only I hadn't, you know, started on the tequila, it would have ended wonderfully. But I always managed to find a way to to make everything a disaster in those days. So so yes, it was it was a it was a good life, but I'm very glad it is long in the rearview mirror now. Have you ever stayed in the uh, the Madonna Inn in San Luis Obispo? <laughs> Do you know I haven't? I, I my my ex girlfriend was from San Luis Obispo, but I I have never stayed. I don't think I've even visited it. Um, well, I, I tell you what, it is as someone who knows hotels, that's you. Uh, it, it is worth because I think it was I think it was built by a like an incredibly rich person who basically wanted a uh, and he was very eccentric. He wanted a place where all of his famous friends from Hollywood could come and hang out, and therefore all the rooms are just incredibly unique and alternative to each other. So you've got like the Winston Churchill suite, which looks like something from fifties Britain, and then the the Greta Garbo, and it's just I mean it's the most bizarre kitsch thing in the world. If you I ever- just looked it up, Dan, while we were, while you were telling me this, I just I you may have heard the keyboard tapping. It is. Good lord! It looks it, it looks a little like a brothel. I'm not going to lie to you. It looks like it, it it's nuts. I went, my girlfriend and I went. <laughs> we went dancing just because there was nothing else to do because it's in the middle of nowhere. And um and uh, we went to the ballroom and we would have been, I would say, the youngest people there by about sixty years. Um, I feel a bit like that in Palm Springs sometimes, so I can relate. That's it is it is a magical looking place. I mean, I. I would worry that you know um, there's there's somebody hiding in the roof spying on you, but it's it is a magical looking place. There's a room that looks like it's a cave. Yeah, it's um, it it's it's it, it's maniacal. If you ever get the chance, that's it. I mean, I'm going. I mean, never mind the chance. I'm getting in the car after this interview, Dad. I mean, this is amazing. I, um, wow. Okay, that was that. I, that is remarkably a place I haven't stayed. And I know I had an ex girlfriend who who literally is from there and didn't mention this to me, even though she knew I loved hotels. So I'm going to have to call her and ask her what's going on there as well, what, what she was hiding from me. Uh, that's incredible. Wow. I don't have a concrete routine because I 
Um, I think this again comes from being a newspaper columnist where my every day was different. Every day was, you know, I'd have to go and meet people or I'd, or I'd be going out on an adventure. And, and so I've kept those habits. I write very close to deadline and very frantically. So, so if I am writing, it probably means I'm on a deadline and it probably means I'm late for the deadline. So I will, as, as early as I possibly can, which for me is about 10 a.m. I'm not an early riser. Um, you know, I'll finish my coffee. I'll have read the papers. I'll have done that. And I'll have put off every possible thing I can put off. Um, you know, I'll have tidied every room and done all of that stuff and rearranged the fridge. So about 10 a.m. I'll finally get to my desk. And then I will, um, I'll have my, my coffee and, and Diet Coke. I have, I have a real problem with Diet Coke. I drink far too much of it. So I'll probably have six like cans of Diet Coke off to the side somewhere. And I will just sit and I will, um, and I will write if I'm, if it's an editing day, um, I will sort of gird myself for, for, for editing or, or if it's a writing day, I'll try and summon the writing gods and I will just sit there until it's, it's done. I don't have a, you know, I'm not one of these 2000 words a day people or, a you know, I work nine to five and then I stop and I go for a swim or whatever. I, I, I will be so close to deadline when I sit down to write that I will just keep going until my eyes are streaming and my my head is pounding and and I'm blurred vision and and I've got it done. So I have a very intense writing schedule when I write, but that's because I spend a lot of my other time. I'm not somebody who can just sit down and, and inspiration comes to them. I get all my inspiration both for nonfiction and fiction from being out in the world and doing things. The the novel I just wrote um, was was about. Uh, it's a murder mystery based in Silicon Valley and it's based, a lot of it is based on things I've experienced over 20 something years covering that weird world. And, and I could only have written it by going out and doing those things and being in those places. So I will go to, I will go to, to things and I will, you know, sometimes I'll start companies or I'll, I'll, um, you know, I started a magazine out in Las Vegas, um, because I thought it might make for an interesting book. So on my non-writing days, I go out and do all these crazy things. But then when it's writing day, it is me, a keyboard, too many Diet Cokes, and and just a, a migraine for sometimes 10 hours a day. How, how sustainable is that? If this is your first bit of fiction. If you were to write more, and if they were to be away from journalism and mem- memoir, as you've done in the past, uh, mm. how, how sustainable is it to not just exist in your own imagination and write a few thousand words every day? So I've tried, I've tried and tried um, to, to, you know, be more like a novelist, be more like a, you know, sit down and, and do a couple thousand words a day, every day. And, and, and I, I just don't think I, I mean, maybe, you know, if you ask me this after four or five novels, maybe I'll have a different answer for you. But, but, but as of right now, I just find it very difficult to break the 20 year, 25 year habit almost of, of writing where it is go out into old and do things and, and then take that inspiration into a, into the, the keyboard, into the story. So um, I don't know if it's sustainable, but it, but let's say it's sustained me for 20 years, that sort of frantic, you know, race to the deadline at the end. And then, and then editing the next day, those, those things that I, I have sort of pounded into the keyboard. It, it, it has worked so far. And I, I think maybe after 20 something years, it's just me. It's just how I do it. Um, but, but it may kill me. We'll see. But but I've tried very hard to kill to sort of find different uh, unhealthy ways to live in in my life and and if and writing ten hours in a stretch is is honestly Dan not the most unhealthy habit I've had in my life so I think it's pretty sustainable you know um, compared to the previous <laughs> the previous life what did working as a journalist what did writing columns uh, teach you about writing fiction how much of those skills are transferable and styles are transferable. Um, so one thing that is transferable is when it comes to the sort of old age old plotting versus pantsing debate. Um, and I, I cannot just sit down for, for a fiction or nonfiction. I can't just sit down and bash out words and, and, and magic happens. I do have to plan, but, um, but what being a columnist taught me is doing a sort of quite a light plan of, you know, I know what I'm writing about. I know broadly speaking what I'm trying to say here uh, when it comes to nonfiction, and I obviously know who my characters are. Um, and and that from that framework, I can then sit down and start to write. And as I write, everything that I've carefully planned gets thrown out the window because I realize, and, and as I'm writing, I, I have all my realizations. Oh no, that's not the point. This is the point. Or oh no, this is what's really happening. And so I found in fiction, it's been the same thing. I, I sit down and I plot what's going to happen in my story and what my character, who my characters are and what they're going to do. 
And then that gives me the confidence to sit down, at which point the characters go mad and just do whatever they want to do. And I just chase them around with my keyboard and hopefully catch some of them and hopefully some of it makes sense. So so I'm both a plotter and a pantser. I have to plot, but then it goes, you know, completely off the rails. But I trust the I I trust those two processes to get me where I need to be in the end. And that was how it always worked as a columnist. I was on deadline. I had two hours to get something to The Guardian or whoever it was. I knew broadly speaking what I wanted to say and where I was going to end up. And I just sat down and as I was writing, all these realizations would come or all of these points I wanted to make would come. And and by the end of it, without fail, I would have my my finished piece. And it's been the same with a, a chapter or a section or whatever with the novel. I think I know where I'm going. It turns out I'm completely wrong. But th- that combination of plotting and pantsing at the same time gets me to my destination. And so far, it hasn't failed. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. We'll get back to it with Paul in just a sec. If you enjoy the show, if you've learned anything along the way, I've had some very, very kind words been sent in recently about uh, things that you're learning, ways that perhaps our authors are helping you shape your working day, little tips they're giving you to just help you get your story down. If that's you, you can always contribute and pledge to the show by becoming a backer at patreon.com forward slash writers routine. It's the easiest way to keep us going, to make sure we keep bringing you these brilliant chats with authors as often as we can. The plan is one every week. Last year, I kind of flirted with two before Christmas <laughs> kind of consumed me. Hopefully, we'll get back to that shortly. There is a chance for you to get bonus content, though, over on Patreon. Not just that, you can get merch, and there is a way for your book to sponsor this show. If you've published something, if you were a bit disappointed by its release... Maybe like so much lockdown hugely hampered that. You can let me do it. Let me plug it. Let me release it for you by becoming a backer and supporting the show. Just a couple of dollars a month really helps us carry on over at patreon.com forward slash writers routine. Let's get back to it then with Paul Bradley Carr, journalist, memoirist, and now novelist. He spent 20 years covering the dark side of Silicon Valley for The Guardian, Private Eye, TechCrunch, and many more. And he's used that experience to write his first novel, 1414 degrees. Uh, it's all about Lou McCarthy, who is investigating someone murdering billionaires. We talk about how writing memoirs is different from novel writing and what one taught him about the other. Also about plotting and how much he knew about the story. And we pick things up talking about the term memoirist, which I've used quite a lot so far in the show. And he tells us why he hates it. When you think of a memoir, you think of a man sitting down at the end of his life or a woman sitting down at the end of her life with a with a pen or a typewriter and, and thinking back wistfully on all these things. I wrote my, my my those books, those sort of adventure, my crazy adventure books as I was doing them. I, I literally on both the, the upgrade and bringing nothing to the party, which were the two that were really the most kind of craziness fueled. Um, 
I wrote them as I was doing it. Like I had sold the books before they were, you know, it's nonfiction. So you sell them on a proposal. And in both cases, it was like, I am doing this thing. I am currently in the first case of bringing nothing to the party. I'm currently trying to become a dot-com billionaire in the first dot-com wave. And I think I'm going to do it. And I want to write a book about my attempts. And then with the upgrade, you know, I'm living in hotels. I'm having these crazy adventures. Um, but, but in both cases, I hadn't finished doing that. And so... No, it felt much more like journalism, much more like, um, you know, writing each section as it was happening and then realizing once I got to the end of the book, what the the sort of moral of it was and, and how it had ended up. So I had no idea how it was going to end when I started, much like with the novel, much like with, with, with writing a, with journalism where everything's constantly evolving. So, yeah, I think, but I think that's, that's the only way I can do it. That sort of sense of, of what I don't know what's going to happen next, but, but I need to, you know, I need to, to just write towards it and see what happens. When you're having these frantic migraine inducing writing days, is, is there anything else kind of going on? Um, music in the background, aside from the Diet Coke, a cup of coffee every hour. What, what, what's that side of things? Yes. So um, my, my girlfriend is also a writer. So it's part of it depends on how our, our schedules overlap. Cause she, she runs a company, but also is a, is a journalist, is a writer. And so sometimes she's, you know, also writing, in which case we're both just sort of in our respective caves. Um, but other times there are things that need to be done in the house. You know, there are, um, we have two children and, and sometimes they need to be picked up from school or dropped off. So there's, there's always, you know, there's, there's something. I'm not, I'm not sort of a 20 year old who lives just completely in isolation anymore. So, so there's always like life going on. Um, but as much as possible, I try to try to sort of shut myself off for that when I'm on these deadline sprints, in which case it is usually the same album, uh, just on, on loop so that I don't really hear it anymore as background noise. Um, and then it is, uh, yes, an endless stream of Diet Cokes, um, occasional coffee, but mostly again, Diet Cokes and, and then yeah, just the migraines. So, so Diet Cokes and then one, one album, usually on, on loop, I have a stereo in the room. Um, I'm not, a, I, I don't do Spotify or anything like that. Cause I know it'll drag me into thinking what else could I listen to? So I literally put a physical CD, like an old man, I hobble over and put a CD in and press play. And that's, that's me for on repeat for 10 hours. With, with this first novel being published, have you learned anything about your, your writing routine that kind of exists, but kind of is up against it at the end that, that you would like to change moving on to a second novel? Yeah, I was going to say, yes, I'd like to be more, 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 you know, to your, your point before, I'd like to be more organized. I'd love to, to, to plot things out a bit better. I definitely writing this novel taught me how to write fiction. Like I, I, it was both, you know, the, the process of writing the novel was both the process of, of writing the specific book, but also learning how fiction works. So I think going sort of going forward into other novels, hopefully I will be more, you know, I'll just be better at it. Hopefully I'll, I'll waste a lot less time making mistakes and going down blind alleys. But, but, but honestly, um, no, I think I just, I, I think I have my process and I know how to do it. I think I'm going to be more confident going into the next one, but but it will probably be the same frantic deadline sprint. It'll probably be the same, you know, um, staring at a staring at a screen until my eyes bleed and getting it out, and then um, and then hopefully at the end of it, having something that people like. I I'm I'm you know I'm I'm sort of just too set in my ways. I think to change too much, even with the the switch in genre. Let's talk about the new book, the novel, uh, and you'll have to. I've 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 looked at the I've I've looked at the title. Um, That's good enough. No, no, You've no, got everything no, you no, need. No, no. And you, you <laughs> might have to walk me through how to say the title. Is it fourteen fourteen degrees? Yes. That's nailed it. it. Out of the gate, wow. you nailed it. It is. I I managed to choose the world's most unpronounceable, ungoogleable, unsearchable title. I don't know how I did it, but I pulled it out of the bag. You can't. No one can type the degree symbol on their keyboard. It's yeah. it's an unfindable book about technology. I'll be honest, I'm I'm surprised. I'm surprised your publicist or whoever it was. I'm surprised they let you get away too. with that because I, I, I know I know what I can be like over here. I've said to them all, like the, all of the people involved in the book. I've said, how did you not tell me that this was going to be terrible? And they all gave me that look of like, would you have listened to us? I think everyone who works with me on books knows that I. I, um, I, you know, I have this sense of like, trust me on this. But on this particular thing, though, I could have used a little bit of a firmer hand and told that no one can pronounce this, Paul. Um, but it's yes, you, you nailed it. So, so you can pronounce it. Perfect. So 14, 14 degrees. And I'll say that many, many times. Uh, so just uh, writing a novel off the back of being a journalist and, and, and writing stories about your life. 
Uh, how confident were you that you could have a good stab at novel writing? And and maybe, if you may be so bold, maybe have a better stab at it than someone who had never written a word before in their life. Oh, good Lord. I'm the opposite of what you just described. So I, I had no confidence I could write a novel. Literally, I had whatever the opposite of confidence is, uh, of, of my abilities there, I had, I had it. Um, I had convinced myself through, through you know, 20 years of, of writing nonfiction that I could, I did not have the gene, the magic that was required to write fiction. Um, to the point where I wouldn't even try because I was a bit like, you know, Schrodinger, Schrodinger's writer where I didn't want to try because I thought if I tried that, if I didn't try, I couldn't fail. I would be exist in this state of, of not having failed. Um, but when I, I had this story I wanted to write about, um, uh, about all of the things I had seen in 20 years covering big tech, Silicon Valley, all these billionaires who, who I've spent a lot of time with and, and all of the terrible things that, that they do, because I don't, even with all this, the scares we have at the moment with Facebook and things like that, people do not know 1% of 1% of how bad this, this tech world is, um, particularly to women, particularly to people of color. It is a brutal and, and, and quite ghastly place. And I say that with, with something approximating love. Um, and, and I wanted to write about all these things I'd seen and I knew I couldn't write it as nonfiction. I was stuck because first of all, these are very litigious people. They, they will sue you for the minor, the most minor infraction, but more importantly, they, it would not be believable. If I wrote as, as nonfiction, everything I've seen with my own eyes and heard with my own ears, people would say I was making it up. They'd say I had an ax to grind. They'd say that, you know, he's, he's just crazy. This, this couldn't happen. If this was happening, we'd know about it. Um, which underestimates powerful people greatly. And so I was stuck and I thought the only way I can write the story I want to write and get across the things I want to get across is to try it as fiction. I also am a lifelong murder mystery fan and all these other things. So I, I thought I'm going to write it as a murder mystery because I love murder mysteries. Um, but I didn't think I could do it to the point where I put it off and put it off and put it off. And it was only when I uh, an agent said to me, um, can you just send me 10 pages of this book? I'd love to see it because you keep telling me you can't write it and you're terrible. I'd love to just see it. So I sat down and forced myself to write 10 pages, basically to prove a point that I couldn't do it. And he just to mess with me said, I love this. This is great. Can you write more? And, and suddenly I was, I was writing it and it was just getting me over that hump of, of total lack of self-confidence, which anyone who knows me will laugh. You know, the idea that I would, I would be anything other than this huge egotist about it, but I'm not, I was terrified. I was, I was said I couldn't do it. I knew I couldn't do it. And then I wrote these 10 pages and this agent liked those 10 pages and, and that was it. I was off to the races. So, um, no. And, but, but I, I felt, I felt like a fraud the whole time. And, and right now I'm talking to, I'm suddenly, you know, the book is out and I'm suddenly talking to all these, this other world, which is, you know, film rights and Hollywood people and all this, you know, nothing will ever happen about this. Anyone who's done anything with films and books knows that they never actually get made. But just having these conversations about the book and everything, I feel like the world's biggest fraud because this whole, the whole time writing the book, the whole time pre-publication, doing publicity, everything else, I, I'm, I still feel like I'm promoting this thing that I, that I can't do, that I'm not really a novelist, that I can't really write a novel. So so yeah, to, to answer your question about, you know, thinking I could make a better stab at it than anyone else. No, I, I still don't think I can. And it baffles me when people like it. I was absolutely certain I knew how at the beginning, the middle and the end, when I, when I said, when I, when I said to the agent, I basically pitched the book. I said, this is what the book would be that I'm never going to write. And then I sat down to write it and I got about a third of the way through with just sheer momentum and and uh, the agent liked it and actually he had started to show it to some publishers and they liked it um i had a publisher who was who was wanted to make an offer on it based on that partial and then i suddenly hit a wall i suddenly just smacked into this wall of i don't know what's i this what i thought was going to happen next that doesn't make sense now it's it's i sort of talked about this before the the merging of plotting and pantsing i suddenly realized oh my goodness i have no idea where this book is going and I actually had to go back to the beginning and start it again, not not once or twice, but about 10 times I restarted this book um, and went off in different directions with it um, until I until I found the one that 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 that, that ended up being the finished book. So. Um, so, yeah, it was it it was I felt very confident once I once I'd been told by the agent he liked it and I started off. I was like, OK, I know where I'm going now and. I know where, where this book ends and, and I was very, very wrong. So there were many false starts, but, but again, it just took 
a few of those and and eventually I found the groove that it was supposed to be in and then and then after that it was quite I, I knew where I was going and it was just a question of getting the words down lots and lots of editing of course lots of rewriting but but at least in terms of where this what the story was and where it was going I I, I found my groove eventually and, and then I was off to the races aside from those moments where you were struggling to get in that groove 10 times over uh, what moments of writing a novel were surprisingly harder than you expected them to be, even though you went in thinking it would be the hardest thing ever that you weren't up to? So the bit that I thought would be the easiest would be the fact that, you know, I've said I, it's based on my 20-something years covering big tech in Silicon Valley. So I thought, well, at least putting the stuff that is is real or based on reality down will be, will be easy. Like describing these characters... Um, you know, especially the sort of secondary characters who are there to provide sort of color for that world and sort of minor sort of plot, have minor sort of plot involvement. I thought that would be easy. I thought writing about real people, real situations would be the easiest part. As it turns out, it isn't because um, if you just write about things that have actually happened, they're, they're quite unbelievable. They're, they're quite sort of people, um, the things that the, the way that people actually behave in Silicon Valley, the things they do don't make sense in fiction. Because because they're sort of they're not they're not I'm not gonna say they're not quite human that's 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 a little too extreme but they don't represent how most people think and behave so I basically found myself having to humanize and I, I basically had to inject empathy into a lot of Silicon Valley people who I genuinely believe don't have any and so basically making Silicon Valley seem believable in fiction required changing a lot of reality. And making it seem better than it is, and so that was the hardest thing was 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 getting getting over this this urge of going. But it's true; this really happened. So I can put this in the book because it really happened, and this person really did this terrible thing. And and my early readers, you know, trusted people who I who I showed pages said, "I don't buy this guy. Like I love this person who was completely made up and a completely fictional character, but I don't buy this guy, this investor guy." And it's like that is a hundred percent based on a real person, and they're like, "Yeah, I don't believe it." So, uh, so that was the hardest part is, is getting over the idea that somehow if things have actually happened, you can just put them in a novel and people will believe it. They, they, it doesn't work like that. You have to, people in novels have to be likable and redeemable or, or at least understandable and stories have to make sense. And in nonfiction, they don't, none of that has to be true. You can write about, you know, someone like dear old Mark Zuckerberg or whoever, and the things they say, and everybody just says, yep, that sounds about right. But if you put a character like Mark Zuckerberg in a book, people would say, I don't buy this guy. Why would he do that? Well, that's just weird. Like, and so you have to create all of your characters, even the ones based on real people from scratch. And, and that was that was for me the hardest bit because I thought it was going to be the easiest. That's surprisingly true, which I never really thought about. But watching, I guess because it's always happening around us and and we're growing with it. But watching Mark Zuckerberg doing the the meta video the other day, and he looks like something... Like it looks like a Bond villain that you would never believe. It, you know, it looks like somebody had written a character of the the nerd, like the you know the most horrible sort of like um, stereotypical lazy writing. This is this, and that's really what it comes down to is if you wrote about a lot of these these folks as they really are, it's lazy writing, it's lazy storytelling. It's like oh he wouldn't do that or or come on he's not that you know robotic he wouldn't say that. And you think, yes, yes. And, you know, even like the name Meta, it's so boring. It's like, you know, I feel like I'd get a note from somebody saying, you know, I like this, but the name Meta, it just seems, you know, can we come up with something better? It's like, it is, it is, they are so unbelievable and so predictable and so boring that, that, that you have to make them much more interesting for fiction. Otherwise people would sort of drift off or drop off. Um, yeah, Elon Musk, it's like he's, you know, he's another example of somebody who if you wrote him, people say, I don't understand it because you're saying on the one hand, he's the smartest person in the world, but he also seems a bit like a 12 year old boy on Twitter. I don't get, which is he? And you say, well, that's a great question. And the answer is somewhere in between. He's nowhere near the smartest person in the world, but he is also not quite a 12 year old boy. And I think people would say, well, you've really got to pick one because I don't think the reader doesn't know who this guy is. It's like, yeah, I agree with you. You know, so so there's a lot of that covering Silicon Valley, and I assume it's the same for politics these days as well. Not not to get dragged into that, but it, but that idea you ha- you hear people say, if such and such a politician was in a novel, you wouldn't believe them, and it, it's unfortunately the same, I think, in in Silicon Valley. So we novelists have to work twice as hard to to make these folks seem believable. 
if I can write a book that works as a murder mystery, I don't care if the rest of if if anyone likes or hates the rest of it, but if it works as a murder mystery, I've tried. You know, it's a triumph. It's like it is the book. You know, I, it's the genre I love the most. I don't read. I really don't read a lot of nonfiction or memoir. I read. I read fiction almost exclusively, and I particularly love murder mysteries, thrillers. Um, I love impossible crime type ones as well, where it's not just who did it, but it's like, how did they do that? You know, that how is that possible? And so all the way through it, I was very cognizant of those those tropes and those ideas. And I, I wanted somebody, you know, I, I kind of knew that somebody who works or lives in around Silicon Valley would read the book and think it was it was okay because they would recognize a lot of it. But I wanted somebody who didn't care about any of that and just loved murder mysteries to read it and, and give me a nice review on Goodreads or Amazon and say, this was a great murder mystery. And those are my favorite reviews are the people who say it works as a murder mystery. You know, I don't care about Silicon Valley, but this worked as a murder mystery. Great. So that was, I was obsessed with that side of it. I wanted to make sure I wasn't, I was playing fair with the reader. There were no kind of there was nothing that couldn't be real. There was, there's no technology in there that couldn't exist. Um, and there's, there's nothing that's kind of deus ex machina where, where it's like, well, of course, like, a, you know, I'm not, I don't want to spoil anything, but it's like, oh, well, of course, if some magical computer does it, then, then, then you could do that. No, it's like, I want it to be, it's human beings killing human beings uh, in very human ways, you know, and, and, and you can work it out if you pay attention to the clues, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, yeah, I spent a lot of time making sure I was playing fair with the reader and, and paying homage to all of my, you know, my, my predecessors in the millions and much more talented predecessors in writing murder mysteries. Uh, and without giving any much away at all, uh, how much did the revelation of the murderer, the whodunit, how much did that surprise you? Oh, it stunned me. I, I, I've always said this is this is what I love about, um, you know, I listen to, like I said, I listen obsessively to your show, Dan, because it's brilliant and everybody should give you five stars on iTunes or <laughs> hear their podcast. Um, but um, but I love I love listening to to writers when they say things like, you know, that, you know, I just I just follow the characters or like the characters reveal themselves to me. And really, it's not me doing the work. It's the characters. And I've always kind of rolled my eyes a little bit about that or more. I, I, I think, honestly, I've more envied it. I thought, wow, I wish I had these characters living in my head. I have to think really hard. And they just seem to, to, to happen. But I will say with the with the the the. I hesitate to call them an antagonist because because even the the protagonist, um, you know, it's not spoiling anything to say, kind of sympathizes with them a lot, and and so do I. But the the person the the, the done it, the person who done it, um, they just walked onto the page. I did not see them coming at all. I I had a very clear idea of where the story was going, and that was probably the biggest record scratch moment was when I I just had this moment of going, oh my goodness, that person did this. And then suddenly I had this whole backstory of why, and it was it was as if not to sound again like I've I've turned full full novelist, but it was like they it was like they just sat me down as as actually it's not really a spoiler as actually happens in the novel where the person this person sits the protagonist down and explains some of this to them that basically happened they sat down in my head and told me everything and basically said don't mess it up because this is quite important to me. It was the weirdest thing. And and from then on out, it was, I won't say it was easy, but it was much clearer to me what was happening and where, where things were going. But this particular person is so much smarter than me is the only problem. So it did take a lot of working things out and thinking, what would this person do in this situation? They, they would know in an instant what to do. And it took me about, imagine it's similar to writing an episode of Columbo, where you're like, Columbo would get this in a minute, but it's going to take me two months of of banging my head against a wall to figure out how they did that. But but yeah, they just walked onto the page. It was bizarre, but I'm I, I, I but I love them. I love this particular person so much that that I'm so glad they did. I'm always fascinated when that happens and intrigued at how much the story has been doing that without you realizing. So when so as in when this character sits you down in your head and says, "Look, it's been me the whole time." If you were to reflect on that moment and try and remember. What you had written before, did it make sense? Did you have to go back and change much, or is, was was it all there in front of your eyes? It was there, and that's what, and that is that is the only explanation of how it happens. That's exactly right. It is, and and particularly with 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 this particular story, which is quite complicated in terms of um, because it involves sort of quite smart people doing quite smart things. It, there's there's a lot you know it has to fit together a bit like a, a a watch or something where all the different cogs have to fit together very very carefully because none of them would make mistakes and so I can't make any um 
uh, it was amazing to look back once I had that revelation to realize, oh, and that's why they were there. And that's why they said that thing. And that's why. So, yes, it was it was subconsciously clearly, I you know, if, if I want to be more spiritual about it, I'd say that person was always there in the background whispering to me or I subconsciously obviously had this idea sitting somewhere and, and everything I was writing was logically leading towards the moment where the person revealed themselves. But it, I, it was freaky. Like, I'm not going to pretend that like, this is a normal thing. Um, it is. It was a very weird thing. And that moment of just sitting there, like at the end of a movie where you have the twist and you go, oh, my God. And you look back. It was very, very weird. But um, yeah, I'm, but no, that's my only fear for writing another another one now is is whether I'll be able to do it again. I'm t- and I, but that I do. It's, it does sound like a lot of novelists say this, but you know, on your show and on others, where they'll say, yeah, you know, every time I sit down to write another book, I feel like I have no idea how to start, or or at least some novelists do. Some are brilliant and just can do it every time, but others I think feel like they're back to st- step one, and I definitely feel a bit of that. It's like, will this other character appear now who tells me what I need to know? Um, but but yeah, it's 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 certainly fun and, and magical. That is it for this week's episode of Writer's Routine. Uh, thank you so much uh, for having a listen and to Paul Bradley Carr for coming on the show. His debut is 1414 Degrees. It's out now. That is spelled 1414 Degrees. Put his name in. He's picked a very ungoogleable title, as he will admit. <laughs> so that's how you look it up if you want to get a copy next week we've got Harriet Klein on the show talking about her book This Shining Life until then you can support us at patreon.com forward slash writers routine you can get in touch on Twitter we're at writers pod you can leave a review on Apple Podcasts and you can use the contact form to say hello at writersroutine.com and I will see you next week with Harriet Klein on the show until then bye Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.